You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, February 27th, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. We are going to be in chapter 2 this morning, and as a reminder, we are just beginning really a journey through the first three chapters of Genesis. And the, the way I, I hope we approach them this morning is, is by taking big steps through chapters one, two, and three, getting the big picture of what's presented for us in these first three chapters. And then having gotten the big picture, we'll circle back around to different things that we're introduced to in chapters one and two and three and understand them in light of that story that we find in the first three chapters. So this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter two. And this morning, we're going to get a portrait in that chapter a portrait of the good life and the good life in the good place that you and I were originally created for. And when I talk about the good place, I need to be clear, I'm not talking about the television show that many of you enjoy. Uh, We're not talking about the good place filled with mansions and manicured lawns and frozen yogurt shops, which is quite a commentary on what writers think we think the good life really is. And so anyway, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about something altogether different. It is a good place. It is the good place. And it is the good place that God intended for the good life that he created us for to be lived out in. Genesis chapter 2 helps us come face to face with the way that things were supposed to be. And as we come to this chapter, I, I want to at least be honest about this because we'll come back to it a few times as we go through it. It is difficult for you and I to take this chapter and work our way through the portrait that's there in front of us because you and I live and experience this world after Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2 speaks of a reality and a place and a life before the entrance of sin, but you and I don't have any kind of experiential context for that. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we come to it on the other side of chapter 3. And so we're going to have to be reminded over and over as we read through this that what's being presented for us is, yes, different than our experience, but it is the way that it was meant to be. And as we go through it, even with that, in some sense, obstacle or hurdle in front of us as we come to the text, it's vitally important that you and I take the time to see and to taste and begin to understand the goodness that's on display in this chapter. That's really what's on display. Goodness. The goodness of God reflected in his created order. And it's vital that we begin to see it, sense it, feel it, taste it, if we're really going to understand and feel the weight of what's lost in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, We're going to begin in verse 4 because this is one of those places in the Bible where the introduction of chapter numbers and verse divisions messes up the story. In fact, if you were with us last week and we went through the first story of creation, it actually goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Why they put the chapter division there, I have no idea. I don't understand. I don't even begin to get the logic of it because that story ends, what what we have is verse three. So this technically is where chapter two should start if we were to go back and redo it, all right? But it's not. So chapter two, verse four begins this way. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so we're immediately introduced to the fact that what's about to come is directly connected to what we just heard or what we just read. And it's not a second creation account as though it's entirely different from the first or an entirely different written account added in later. It, it's completely intricately connected and tied to what we saw last week and what we understand to be Genesis chapter one, except this particular story centralizes in a place where Genesis chapter 1 helps us to see God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and the fullness of the cosmos, his authority and his power speaking that which doesn't exist into existence. Chapter 2 zooms in and it goes from the grandeur of the cosmos and the created order down to a garden. And while God Almighty is on the scene, God Almighty is seen 
so clearly and in a new light, in light of his goodness towards his creation order. He's almighty and good, especially in the way that he relates to man. This is what this chapter is is meant to help us to see in the big picture. So let's pick it up in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Some of your Bibles will say spring right there. A spring was coming up. That's actually probably a better way to do it. The ESV puts it over in your little notes on the bottom. Some of the other translations just put it in there. It's better to kind of understand it that way and to see it that way. A a spring was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Things were ready, but not yet fully ready. Creation is awaiting, in a sense, the arrival of its stewards. It's untended. It's not tended to yet. The missing element so far is the steward of this order, steward who we know to be man. But it was ready for him. It was waiting for him. Scientists talk about this under the guise of the anthropic principle. That simply means that all the various phenomena in the universe, all the various phenomena in our galaxy must be just as they are in order to support human life. And in fact, one scientist wrote it this way, We have on earth, in order order to sustain human life, just the right galaxy size and just the right galaxy type and just the right galaxy location. We have just the precise star location, star mass, and even the right star color. The tilt of the earth's axis is exactly right to allow for human life. The tidal forces in the oceans, the magnetic field, the precise thickness of the Earth's crust, the ocean-to-continent ratio, the oxygen quantity in the atmosphere, the water vapor level, the tectonic activity, all of these are necessary in order to sustain human life. And not just necessary, he said, but necessary in minute intricacy. And they all fit together just so as God would provide in this good world for his man. This is the picture of what we have here coming into verse 7. It's ready, but not yet. It's awaiting. It's awaiting the arrival of man. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now this verse is the stuff of months of sermons and lectures and messages, but there are just a few big things that come off the pages that I want you to see as we take these big steps through the text. And the first is that man was God-formed. Moses is very clear about this. The Lord God formed the man. And that language that's used there is the language of intentionality of design, of craftsmanship. It's language that would often be used of a painter or of a sculptor with intentionality and design being able to bring that creation into form. See, we're reminded even here in chapter 2 that man is not an afterthought. The mind of the Almighty that purposed the galaxies and the subatomic particles That same almighty, infinite wisdom focused on the forming of man. He's God-formed. And he's God-formed out of stuff. What we have here as dust is probably, it's one of those Hebrew words that it's a little bit bigger than just what you and I think of as dust when you get the vacuum cleaner out and, and begin to vacuum up dust or begin to wipe up dust. It, it's a word that, that really speaks to the stuff of earth. He was formed out of the stuff of earth. And that's important. In one sense, it's not something that we should quickly overlook because it reminds us that we're real. We're made from stuff. And if Jesus doesn't return first, it's to this stuff that we will return. But more importantly, we're reminded here of the goodness of this stuff. 
of what he has made. The biblical Christianity does not reject the goodness of the body, of the physical, of the material. In Moses' day, just as there is in our day, there were stories and worldviews about life that rejected the material, that rejected the physical, that understood humanity simply to be a mind that was trapped in some kind of physical flesh form, that if somehow you could just get free of the trappings of the flesh for the mind to expand and grow, that would be the fullness of life. And so we're reminded, importantly here, as quickly as we go over it, we're reminded here that this stuff is good. And being God-formed out of this stuff is a reminder that we are dependent creatures. And at the same time, we're still the crown of the created order. And so as you and I spend any time reflecting on those two things as John Calvin said in his commentary of Galatians, it should produce in us a growing quantity of humility. Calvin said the body of Adam is formed of dust to the end that no one should exult, no one should boast, no one should have too much confidence beyond measure in their flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not here learn humility. I've yet to come across a commentator today who would speak as frankly as Calvin. You would be stupid to contemplate being God-formed and not learn some measure of humility. God-formed out of the stuff of the earth. But not just that. We're reminded here in this account that we're also God-breathed. In Hebrew, the the word for breath and the word for spirit, it's actually the same word, ruach. And so when you speak of God's spirit, it's the same word to speak of his breath, which makes Genesis chapters 1 and 2 all the more pictorial when you consider God's spirit hovering over the, the waters of the darkness of the deep. It was his breath that was hovering and moving over those waters and darkness of deep that would give rise to his word, as his breath became word, speaking into existence that which was not already there. But here we're reminded that God breathed. God breath. He blew the breath of life into man. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament writer, he said that this idea of breath is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and a self-giving act at that. God formed and God breathed to life. And Moses says the man became a living creature. A living creature, same words used as those who had been created before him, but a distinctly different creature than any other that was there. For this creature, man, was the only one made in the image and likeness of God into which God breathed life. And so just slowing down, reading it a bit like a human, considering what's being said, we're already seeing that God is not just the almighty creator, But he's the almighty creator who is warm, intentional, intimate, careful, and as the story will help us to see altogether, good, good. So, so far we've seen that man is good, God formed and breathed to life. But now in verse eight, the story is gonna move on. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. So now we're going to get a sense of the goodness of the place in which God put this man. So Moses says that God planted a garden in Eden in the east. East in reference to where Moses was in Sinai. In the region of Sinai, writing this for the generations that are going to go into the promised land, the Eden, the region of Eden was east of where Moses was. But what's most important for us to understand, because if you're familiar with these stories, and we'll see a couple of times through the story how we kind of collapse these narratives together out of familiarity, what's important to notice here is that Eden is a region 
The garden is in Eden. The garden isn't Eden. Eden was a region in which the garden was. And that was east of where Moses was at the time. That's about as much as we can safely understand and know right there. What follows is a collection of names and places and rivers that Moses and all of his contemporaries would have clearly understood. They would have known where these places were, where these regions were, and where these rivers were. We don't have that luxury. We love to guess, we love to prognosticate, and while we can identify the Tigris and the Euphrates on the map, that's about it. The rest of what's in these verses remains unknown to us. And so theologians like to talk about responsible guessers. Those who are at best making a guess on how we can read these and begin to put our finger on a contemporary map. It's just a responsible guess. And the best of responsible guessers tend to place this region that is being talked about in Genesis chapter 2 somewhere in the region of the Fertile Crescent or of ancient Mesopotamia. But we can't be sure today. You can go have fun trying to figure out the regions and the river, but we can't truly know at this point. But what we do know as you read the story, and you just slow down and read it and consider it, what we do know is that this place was a paradise in every single way that you and I could even begin to conceive of that word. That word probably falls short of what was here. In verse 9, it says that out of the ground, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Beautiful and useful. You can imagine it in in that totality being something that was an absolute treat to the senses, to the eyes, to the taste, to the touch. A treat to all of them. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. That's going to be important in chapter 3. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. Verse 10 A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God took the man in whom he had formed out of the stuff of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. He took him and he put him in this stunning place, not just to look at it, not just to listen to it, not just to touch the the constituent parts of it and enjoy it, but to steward it. He put him there with a purpose. He put him there with a responsibility. He put him there with a job to steward this place. And so we have to understand, and we're going to spend some time after we finish Genesis 3 and come back to it, we have to understand that responsibility and work, as we understand it, is actually good. Work is not a reality after Genesis 3. It's not a post-fall creation. Work is part of God's original creation order. How we experience it on the other side of Genesis 3 is altogether different. We experience work differently than it was originally created and intended. But responsibility and, and work, purpose and the labor of our hands is part of God's design and intention for man. So we're going to come back to that in the weeks to come and talk more about that after we get through Genesis chapter 3. But what you can see just slowly reading and listening to the story is that man is good. The place, the garden is good. The job, the purpose, the vocation is good. They're good as they reflect the goodness of the one who intended them and created them. And they And they're good in what they are. And now we're going to see that his ways, God's ways, are good as well. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. That's called a decree of permission. 
right? You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And then he says in verse 17, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is called a decree of prohibition. So you've got a decree of permission and a decree of prohibition. Simple question, not a trick question. You can even answer me. It doesn't have to be rhetorical. Which came first? Permission. That is vitally important to understanding the message of Genesis chapter 2. It's essential to understanding the message of Genesis chapter 2, and it's essential to understanding the weight of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. As one writer said, in the beginning, God made a lavish world of yes. A lavish world of yes. Everything was a treat to the senses of man. He gave immense privilege immense freedom for the fullness of man's joy and the fullness of his delights, the fullness of his enjoyment. The decree of permission is a lavish expression of God's generosity and goodness to man. The decree of permission protects that goodness. But in a world of yes, God placed just one no in the middle of it. Now, for centuries, Jewish theologians and rabbis and teachers have been writing about these two verses. And they tend to to put them in the context of the same story over and over again. So I'll try to give you a, a, a contemporary version of the story. So the story of understanding these verses would go like this. Imagine building at your house a large playroom, right? So imagine, remember when you were a kid or if you have kids, think about your kids. Building a large playroom and filling that playroom with the most amazing toys, crafts, whatever imaginable. Just floor to ceiling, it's all there. And being able to go in as a child or send your kids in and say, of all of this room, have at it. It is all yours. Enjoy it. Use it for your joy. Whatever you want to do with it, go for it. And as you walk in, you, um, you take your brand new, fancy Les Paul guitar and you set it right down against the wall and you say, but just don't touch that. Just keep your hands off the guitar. That's not for you to play, not for you to, to mess with, but the fullness of this entire room is for you and your joy. Do with it as you want, right? All you're doing is asking them to accept your authority and keep your hands off the guitar, right? Now, you and I all know that from the minute you put that thing down and you say don't touch or don't play that guitar, the thought and intention of every child in that room is going to be on that guitar, There's something in all of us that just wants what we're not supposed to have. This is important. This is a Genesis 3 instinct. It's a Genesis 3 impulse. I say that because we have no reason to believe that that instinct or impulse is in Adam at all in Genesis 2. Now, we tend to collapse the stories. We think about creation. We think about the fall. Right here in the story... God decrees his permission for Adam to enjoy all that he has created. And we have no reason to believe that in Adam's heart and the instinct in him was to look at the one thing he wasn't supposed to have and want it. We can't even fathom this reality. This is part of the hurdle and the obstacle that we have in coming back to Genesis chapter 2. Because we only know the world through a post-fall, post-sin, post-Genesis 3 reality. But that wasn't the case for Adam right here. It's going to take a snake for Adam to want what he's not supposed to want. It's going to take the introduction of the idea for him to want what he's not supposed to want. And what is it he's not supposed to want? He's not supposed to want the ability to decide for himself what's good and what's evil. And we'll talk more about why that's the case when we get to it in chapter 3. Will you listen to me? Will you trust me? Do you believe I'm good? 
eat freely of everything that I've given you, lavish to your senses. Friends, as you read chapter 2, when you just read it slowly, I want you to see that goodness and generosity define God in this chapter. It's part of what we're supposed to see. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Again, it's important. We come to this on the other side of the fall. It's important that you understand that we have no record or reason to believe that Adam complained to God about being alone. You and I think about aloneness, and we think about this, and we bring it to this story, but we have no reason to believe that Adam at all complained to God about being alone. Instead, God in his goodness saw man, and he made a decision. I, God said, will make a helper fit for him. It's God's intention. It's God's purpose. It's God's design. It was God's gift. And it's a massive, massively important gift that he gives. And God says, I will make a helper fit for him. We'll spend some time on this in the weeks to come, but I want you to see that this word that's used here, this helper fit for man, Helper is a massive, massive word. 21 times in the entire Old Testament, this word is used. 16 of the 21 times this word is used, do you know who it's talking about? God. This is the word he takes for himself. Jehovah Etzer, God, my helper. God, the helper. The stone of help. You, my help. This is the title, the identity, the picture that God takes on for himself throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So to God's creation, he looks and decides, I will make a helper fit for him, a complement to what he needs. And it's important when you begin to understand the word, you begin to see that God is not inferior or subordinate to anything he makes. So the idea that this helper, this etzer, would in any way have any level of inferiority to the man isn't tenable. This idea of helper has in it absolutely zero sense of inferiority. This is not an inferior, inferior, superior picture. This is a picture of perfect compliments. And it's a picture not just for companionship, right? He's not just trying to meet a psychological, social need for companionship in man. He already had a dog, probably. We know how good those are for that, right? (laughs) Or cats. We have cat cat folk. I mean, he already had that. that. That it was just psychological, social companionship, then that was already there, right? And if it's just a lot of work that's in front of him in this having dominion and subduing the earth and cultivating this garden, he he could have made for Adam a team of lumberjacks, right? Guys would just go do all the work. That's all that it was about. But that's not what this is all about. This is the perfect complement to him to not only reflect the fullness of God, having both been created in his image and likeness, but the perfect complement to subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. It is the perfect complement to this man in order to do all that God had intended for humanity to do in every way, okay? We understand that just from biology class. In every way, he created the perfect complement. This is what's happening here. And there's lots to say about it, but we'll have to come back to it in the weeks to come. So verse 19, it continues on. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Again, just read it. Why didn't God name them? He's named other things already. We know from Genesis chapter 1, he he named some things. I mean, he created them. He has the right and the authority to do so, right? Right? Now, this is just the beginning of a picture of what this delegated authority that God is giving to humanity to look like. 
And so in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I love it. It was Matthew Henry, one of, the, one of the great old writers, said something like, Adam went to sleep and he lost something deeply profound, but he woke up to something altogether better. And we see again that God is again the creator of what is fit for man. Adam doesn't come to God and ask for this helper fit for him. He doesn't come to God and describe what this helper would look like or what this helper would be. No, this is God's intention. He knew and he purposed and he created. And he created from Adam's stuff. That's what that is. When we translate rib, it's kind of like translating dust, talking about Adam being formed of the dust. The word is actually a bit bigger. It's as though he goes into the side, takes out the rib, but it's all the marrow, all the blood, all the flesh, everything that would come with it. It was out of the stuff of Adam that God made a helper fit for him, perfect for him. And then God brings her to him. Like a father bringing the bride to the groom. What will Adam do? What will Adam say? I mean, I've had the chance to stand next to a lot of grooms, listen to what they're saying, what they're feeling, kind of sensing it. The best, including my own wedding and my own moment before my own wife walked down, the best of those moments is just a shadow of this one. Remember, he did not, how do I say this best? She is not a figment of his imagination. Like he didn't have a concept of her. He didn't have this idea of her that he was waiting for, right? We're, we gotta remember, we're bringing all of our experience into this. He did not have the idea for her in his mind and wait for God to make her. He had no concept of this. He just went to sleep. And then he woke up. And God brings to him something that he will immediately recognize as perfect for him. He didn't even know what he needed. And God brings her to him. And the very first recorded words of humanity in the Bible are the lyric to a poem or a song that Adam busts out into when God brings her to him. That's what this is. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's a tremendous amount of beauty in these words that gets lost in some of the translation. So man was formed from the dust of the earth, right? The word in Hebrew there for for earth is adamah. So we call him Adam because he was named out of his origin, formed out of the Adamah. Same thing is going to happen right here in this song that Adam sings. When he sees her, he says, she shall be called Ishaha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. Adam does in this song exactly what he understood God to have done. She's not me, but she's me. She's me, but she's not me. She's exactly what I need. Trying to imagine an amplified version of this moment. Joe Rigney is a a theologian and a a pastor. He, He said this. He's trying to imagine the moment. You come from me, but you're not me. Your bones were built from my bones. Your flesh was cut from my flesh, my flesh. We are alike, but we're different. We're the same, but we're sundered. We're distinct. God has torn me in two only to put me together again. He removed from me a piece of my side so that he might return it with interest. What name will capture what I'm feeling in this moment? 
She shall be called Ishah, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. And as you begin to read the story again and you slow down, consider some of the implications of what's happening here and what's being said and and the context of how we understand it in Genesis chapter 1. You're beginning to see here the the picture of the goodness of the interdependence, the, the mutual dependence that this man and this woman have on each other. Woman was made from man. And from that point forward, every man will come from the womb of a woman. Even Jesus. And in God's eyes, it's good. And the beginnings of what this mutual interdependence is meant to look like are here in Adam's song. As well as the goodness of the inherent dignity of both the Ish and the Ishaha, the man and the woman. Remember, both, according to Genesis chapter 1, were created in the image and likeness of God. Now, you have to understand, in Moses' day, that would have been utterly scandalous. Remember, part of these books and these stories were written to help God's people as they went into the land understand the true story of which they were a part of in light of all the stories that were constantly pulling on their hearts. You need to realize that in every other creation story that existed in the nations, Canaan, Mesopotamia, Egypt, it did not matter. In every other account of creation and the way those nations would conceive of it, nowhere ever other than the Bible does the creation of woman get any press. Period. But here, in Genesis chapter 2, it's not just a mention. The spotlight turns onto the intentional formation of this woman created in the image and likeness of God. She is no lesser being in relation to the man. She is created in the image and likeness of God just like he is. We'll know in the story as it plays out, she has equal access to this God Being created in the same image and likeness of this God as the man is means that she also has equal dignity and worth. This would have been utterly scandalous to Moses' day. Not only was she created with equal dignity and worth, but remember, the initial command God gave to the man and the woman in Genesis 1, and we see play out in Genesis 2, was a mutual command to subdue the earth and fill it. She is every much a part of that command as he is. It was given to both of them. There is an interdependence and dignity that's being spoken of and formed in this story that would have been scandalous to people in Moses' day and it would have been glorious to the ears of God's people. The woman was not created to serve the man. No, she was created to serve with the man. Without her, he was only half the story. She wasn't an afterthought. She wasn't an add-on or an adjunct to an independent, self-sufficient man. No, she is a perfect fit for him to reflect the image and likeness of the one who created them. We're seeing it already in the early parts of the stories. And it's not just the goodness of their mutual dependence. It's not just the goodness of their inherent dignity and worth, but you also get a sense of the goodness of their distinction that God puts in place. Right? I don't have to tell you that we live in very confusing times regarding this. Just for me to stand here and to say that there is a distinction in gender, there is a sexual distinction and a gender difference is bothersome to many people because I just use two phrases interchangeably. We live in very confusing times. We live in a cultural moment that is working rapidly to erase any notion of distinction at all in our life. And we're going to have to talk about this, but what I want you to understand is that this kind of erasure of distinction is not part of the goodness of God's original intent and created order. The distinction is by his design for his glory and our joy. But again, we're reading things as they were created to be. 
not how we currently experience them. Because we experience these realities again on the other side of Genesis 3. But even in our experience of this world on the other side of the fall, we are meant to embrace the patterns that God has designed in order for us to flourish. And so we'll come back to that in the weeks to come. You can go ahead and put a little bookmark on that one. But God inspired Moses to record for us, if you go back and read the story, a somewhat disproportionate in amount of time story and order of the goodness of his creation of man and woman, the pattern of man and woman, and their co-equality, their interdependence, and their distinction are good according to his purpose, which makes the pattern that we begin to see on display in verse 24 all the more glorious. Verse 24, therefore, in light of this, what God has done, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And even here, we're beginning to see the goodness of the institution of marriage. That in the Genesis 2 understanding, the world as it was intended to be, we were quite literally made for this. And we're confronted with the reality that the institution of marriage is not a post-fall creation. It was an institution that God created and put in place in Genesis chapter 2. But you and I experience it on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. Marriage is not the product of sociological evolution. No matter how hard people want to marginalize it today, it's just an optional lifestyle choice. It's part of God's goodness, part of his intention in creation. Which is why one writer said, in light of what you understand to be happening in Genesis chapter 2, He said marriage as a creation order. And you got to understand this word is used today in ways that are not speaking of something that God created. So you've got to be very clear when you're talking about this. Understanding marriage and the institution of marriage in light of God's creation order, you begin to see that it can only be between a man and a woman. Because marriage is not just the union of two persons, but in a profound way, it's the reunion of a complementary pair. It has to be an ishaha and an ish. It has to be a womb man and a man. It's not just two people saying we've decided to be best friends forever and then figuring out a way to express that commitment sexually and physically. It's far more glorious and deeper than that. It's a reunion. You are the sort of person who was taken from the sort of person that I am. You're my Ishaha. It's only in this created intended order that the fullness of understanding male and female begins to even make sense. Husbands and wives begin to make sense. Kids would naturally begin to follow. And you begin to see that the gifts of God for man and for woman and the intimacy that God has intended for man and for woman to enjoy are found here. The Bible is not shy about this at all. We shouldn't be shy about it either. The intimacy between a husband and a wife is part of God's created intended order for them to enjoy freely and without embarrassment. And it's here. And we see in verse 25 that this man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. That's a statement of profound purity, profound innocence. And even today, in the best of marriages in this room, we only know a taste of that. What we're meant to see, though, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, and we're coming to it, remember, on the other side of Genesis chapter 3, Trying to even get our heads around what's going on here is hard for us. We can only bring our experience in a fallen world to it. But what we're meant to see in chapter 2 is that life in this garden, life in this place is good. As it was supposed to be. And I know this is not the way we experience it. I've said it a hundred times already. And I want to be very careful and clear. And we'll say it again as we come back to these things after Genesis chapter 3. This story is not saying that somehow your life is incomplete if you're not married. 
Or if you're married, your life is somehow incomplete if you don't have kids. That would be quite the indictment of both Paul and Jesus, right? There are many in this room who understand the loss of a spouse or a loved one or the pain that has come in marriage on this side of the fall and the the pain and the hurt of not being able to have the kids that your heart may so desperately desire and the futility of the work that we put our hands to. But chapter two, as we come to it, even with our experience and lens on the other side of chapter three, chapter two is meant for us to see that God's goodness is freely on display in the world in which he created. The place is good. The man and the woman were good. The garden is good. The work, the labor was good. The marriage and the joy is good. And it's essential to see and to feel that goodness in order to truly understand the consequences of what's going to come in the next chapter. And it's important that you and I, even now, begin to see and feel the goodness on display in chapter two because the more we see it, the more it jumps off the pages to us when we slow down and read it and consider what's actually being said, the more we're confronted with God's goodness in this place and in this life he had created, the more our heart begins to long for it. This is what we were created for. This is the way it was supposed to be. And the good news is that you and I on this side of the story, not just this side of Genesis chapter 3, But this side of the cross and the resurrection, you and I know that in God's wisdom and his grace, this is the way that it's going to be again. See, it's interesting in Genesis chapter 2, in some sense, as the start of the story, it starts with a marriage. It really kind of builds into this moment of this union that God forms between this man and this woman. And we know from the rest of the story that it's headed to a conclusion with another marriage. The wedding supper of the Lamb, it's called. When the church, the bride of Christ, is ushered into a new heavens and a new earth where we'll be with Jesus for all of eternity. The goodness that we see on display in Genesis chapter 2 in the place, in the life that was meant to be lived there, is just a picture and a pattern for the fullness of what is going to be experienced for those who have given themselves to Christ for all of eternity. A new heavens and a new earth. God's people being brought to his son. All shades of Genesis chapter 2. Where we'll spend all of eternity in the glory of his recreation. And we'll do it unashamed. Unashamed. I mean, right now, there isn't a person in this room who truly has a sense of what it is like verse 25, to be naked and unashamed. I mean, every single one of us is plagued by the sense that we're ashamed of something. Something we've done, something we've said, something we weren't meant to become, something we're afraid of being found out about, something we're afraid of being discovered. Something or another is is left a film on every single one of our hearts. But in the day that is to come, In that day when the bride of Christ is brought to the groom, in that day when Christ returns and a new heavens and a new earth, a recreated experience greater than we can even get our heads around when we read Genesis chapter 2, when that becomes a reality, we'll be there, clean, unafraid, unashamed, and redeemed clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This union in Genesis chapter 2, this picture that we get as the story builds, it's going to give way to a fuller and more perfect union. Fuller and more perfect than you and I can even get our head around. One that depends not on God providing for you the perfect helper fit for you, a husband or a wife, but on providing for you the perfect righteousness of his son. For those who would believe on Christ in faith and repentance, we become his and he becomes ours. And the promise of eternal life as it will be becomes ours. 
This is our hope and our joy. It's not always going to be the way it is now. I mean, we sang about it at the start of the service. Glory awaits for all of God's redeemed. Glory awaits and we'll be free. Genesis chapter 2 gives us a portrait, a, a pattern of hope, of God's goodness that will be on display for our joy for all of eternity. And friends, it's our confidence in this goodness. It's our confidence in God's goodness. And it's our confidence in God's faithfulness that we proclaim every single week as we respond to God's word by receiving communion. It's the confidence in his goodness and his faithfulness that we sing about. God is still lavish in his grace to us today. He's lavish to us even as we're reminded of his grace to us in his son. And so in just a moment, we're going to give you a a minute to just reflect quietly on God's word. And then after a minute or two of reflection, for all who have believed into Jesus, who are repenting of their sin, who are confident in him for new life, you're going to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place for your sin, to dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, you are proclaiming your confidence in God's goodness and faithfulness. And as you do that, God is doing something that only he can do in your heart, working in you a greater hope for what is to come. And so we're going to give you now a moment to reflect, to consider, to pray, to respond to God. And then together we'll respond to his word as we sing, as we celebrate, and as he sends us out from here as his people. So let me pray and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you this morning that we're not left to just make up our own ideas of what your goodness may be like, what your, what your goodness might look like. But you have put on display for us, not, not only just most fully in your son, but even in the stories of creation, a portrait of your goodness, a portrait of your glory, a portrait of your kindness and power. God, so many things are tempting our hearts to doubt this. So many things and stories in our, in our world and moment right now are trying to to hollow out this idea of how good you really are. So Lord, I ask that this morning and in the days to come that you would do in your word and through your word and by your spirit as we consider Genesis chapter two, you would do in our hearts what only you can do and you would would explode a vision of your goodness and faithfulness. You will explode in us the hope of glory that is to come. Lord, I ask this morning that you would do that for Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.